Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Oh man, you know what? I was thinking to myself, this is great. David's going to go up there, he's going to sing uh, a chorus or something like that, and people will forget the kids. But now that he's got this great funny story, I'm like, oh, now I've got to follow up. Well, right now we're going to pray. And Lord, we do pray that you would be glorified as we learn more tonight. I pray that you would bless us. And I pray, Jesus, you would help us to learn uh, how to make right decisions. And Lord, how to uh, glorify you by making uh, the right decisions when they're coming at us sometimes so quickly. Uh, Jesus, help us to learn tonight and glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, since we have some visitors tonight, and I'm very glad you're here, I need to uh, let you know a little bit about what we're doing. I am uh, getting my doctoral degree, and so uh, one of the requirements is that I need to teach some of the material that I'm learning. And so tonight, uh, we are talking about ethics. And I am very sorry for those of you who are visiting, and I'm not preaching straight from the Bible like I always otherwise do. But hopefully tonight, you'll be able to uh, get something out of it too. So we'll enjoy that. But tonight, we're going to talk about what is right. The last several weeks, we've been talking about how people view the world, how they look at what is around them. We talked about how people see the world differently, especially than Christians uh, do through the eyes of the Bible, lens of the Bible. And we saw how depending on how you looked at the world, there were advantages and disadvantages uh, to uh, the way you had your worldview. Now tonight, we want to do the same type of thing, tonight and next week. Uh, we're going to talk about the same type of thing, but in this case, we're not talking about how people view the world per se, but we're going to look at how people make moral decisions. How do people decide, for example, whether they should steal something or not? Hopefully that itself is not a problem that most of us are dealing with, but you know. Um, <laughs> but what makes this kind of teaching tough, both for doctor or ministry students and for the audience that he's speaking to, is that you've got to define words. Words are very slippery, and we need to come to terms with terms. We need to make sure that we understand the vocabulary that we're looking at. And if you look at your note sheet, hopefully you got uh, these as you walked in, I want to uh, look at the very first three words that are going to be very important for the next couple of weeks as we talk about this. And the first um, one I want to look at is the word morality. Uh, morality is bounced around. It's, we, we talk about it on the news. We talk about it on TV programs. But no one really knows exactly what it means. Well, morality is probably a good definition is moral knowledge. 
Now, hopefully, some of you are remembering back from high school and you're thinking to yourself, hey, you can't define a word using the word. Yeah, I got at least one or two nods here. Uh, but I'm going to define that word so it makes sense in just a moment. And I, but I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about when I say moral knowledge. And a simple one is adultery is wrong. You know, amazingly, you go around the world in all the different cultures, and everybody knows that. Now, some cultures say you can have more than one wife, but the point is, is they understand that a wife and a husband belong together. Now, ethics is another thing that is just kind of bantied about. Normally, we hear the word ethics when we hear of some lawyer or some doctor acting on ethically. We hear that word and we just think, oh, he's doing something bad. But ethics is broader than morality. Ethics is moral reasoning. Ethics in this case would, if you use the example of adultery, it would be a discussion. It would be uh, something that two people would engage in to determine why adultery or stealing or lying is bad. And so someone who does something unethical, say a lawyer, and this lawyer engages in the practice of lying, he's acting unethically. Never mind any lawyer jokes. We don't want to hear any of those right now. That was supposed to get a chuckle. Sorry, I told you my ego is hurting tonight. <sighs> so... But unethically, he is acting against what is the agreed-upon things that this lawyer should be doing. Or a doctor, for example, uh, a doctor takes an oath, and in this oath, he says he will not harm. He will do no harm. And when a doctor would intentionally or through negligence not doing something he should have done harms someone, he is acting unethically. There's an agreed body of moral reasoning that says you should not do this, and he does it anyways. But then we have to get to this word that I've used twice now, and that's moral. And moral is a tricky word. And I hope that some of you are thinking a little bit, and you're not going to like the definition I give you right now. My my definition is moral is relating to the norms within a society or a culture. A norm is simply the way people act. Not uh, in bad ways like uh, driving 80 miles an hour down the freeway, but in the fact that most people know that someone driving 70 on the freeway, even though the sign says 65, eh, that's what we expect. We expect someone to drive 70. And if someone's driving 100, we get offended. If someone's driving uh, 64, we're doubly offended. (laughs) Thank you. You guys are catching on. I needed that. Okay. So this idea of moral being related to the norms within a society or culture turns out to be a very important fact in understanding morality and ethics. And the reason is, and, um, 
and this is, this is kind of a tricky point, because the non-Christian ethicist, the person who thinks about morals but is not a Christian, is going to say, ah, I gotcha, when I define morals by relating it to a society or a culture, because he's going to say, then that means morality is determined by the society or the culture. And that's where I hope some of you were already thinking that, and you're going, wait a minute, Greg, you can't say that. Well, trust me, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say that uh, morals are defined by a culture or a society, but it is the way that human beings process them. So stay with me for a few minutes. But I will say that every single human being that has ever walked the earth has been born subject to a culture or a society of the kingdom of God and has imprinted upon his heart the necessity of obeying that kingdom's moral laws. Okay, we're going to get back to that point in a minute. Ultimately, what defines uh, what is right or wrong, what defines morality, is the moral law of God. Let me say this in a way that non-Christian people who don't believe the Bible would be utterly appalled at me saying, and that this is, it's on your notes, there are right and wrong answers to moral questions. There are right and wrong answers to moral questions. And when a person or a society or a culture denies this, when a person or a culture denies that there are right answers to moral questions, the society around them degenerates. It just dawned on me. I didn't put this in my notes. But what's the difference between a culture and a society? A culture is a smaller unit than a society. We live in the United States, which is a society of many cultures. And there are, uh, oh my goodness, dozens of cultures. There's um, women cultures. There's men cultures. There's football cultures. There's soccer cultures. There's um, rodeo cultures. There's, you know, there's all these different ways. But just when you, when you hear the word culture, think of something small. When you think of society, think of something big. Okay, that was a timeout. But I want to show you that I'm not alone in this. And I want to read uh, a quote. It's kind of a long quote, so stay with me here. Uh, That's from one of my books that I use to do this. And here's a guy who's speaking to everybody, uh, non-believers and uh, Christians alike. And he says, since virtually everyone grows up with a basic understanding of the institution of morality, its norms are readily understood. It's ways of operating, it's ways of of thinking and seeing how things are, are readily understood. And this is going to be a key point over the next two or three weeks. All persons who are serious about living a moral life. Now, I want to stop for a second. All persons who are serious about living a moral life. They can be Hindu, they can be Buddhist, they could be Muslim, they can be Zoroastrian, they can... I don't care what religion, you can even be an atheist. If you're serious about living a moral life, 
then what I'm about to say will make sense. These people already grasp the core dimensions of morality. They know not to lie, not to steal property, to keep promises, to respect the rights of others, not to kill or cause harm to innocent persons and the like. All persons serious about morality, again, key point, are comfortable with these rules. You don't have to think, hmm, should I steal? Should I lie? You you don't have to think, is this going to be a morally justifiable option? And do not doubt their relevance and importance. In other words, they, they don't doubt that the moral law not to steal is an important consideration if you're thinking about stealing. Okay, but we'll see how that alters in just a second. They know that to violate these norms without having a morally good and morally sufficient, we're not going to get to that tonight, but we will get to that, uh, morally good and morally sufficient reason is immoral and should lead to feelings of remorse, guilt. Because we are already convinced about such matters, the literature of ethics does not debate them. Such a debate would be a waste of time. What he's saying at the end here is, look, if you want to argue that lying to your boss is not immoral, then you're wasting my time. I don't, I don't have to debate. The burden of proof is not on me to prove to you that lying, all else being equal, to your boss is a bad idea. Amen to that? You guys get that? And by the way, I want to say one more thing about this. And C.S. Lewis is only the most famous example. But this idea that all people who are serious about making moral decisions, and I don't care what religion you come from, I don't care where you were born, all people who are serious about making moral decisions, about living a moral life, they all understand these moral laws. And C.S. Lewis wrote a book, Mere Christianity, defending the idea of God's existence based on this reality. And I just want to read one quote. I'll I'll go through this quickly. But C.S. Lewis said, The other bit of evidence about the Creator, about God, is that moral law which he has put into our minds. And this is a better bit of evidence than the other. He he was talking about creation, the, the whole universe. Because it is inside information. Catch this. Listen to how C.S. Lewis describes it. You find out more about God from the moral law inside your heart or your mind than from the universe in general, just as you find out more about a man by listening to his conversation than by looking at a house he has built. The point he is making, and I'm going to try to summarize this Uh, next week a little more clearly, the point that he is making is that because, because there is a reality of the moral law, we can know that there is a moral law giver who has put it into our hearts. Okay, are you with me now? Here's my point so far. No matter how much a non-Christian ethicist will scream and yell about there being no moral law that is absolute, that is binding on everyone, everyone knows that there is. 
everyone knows that there are moral rules, even if they pretend not to know them. In fact, I just want to do a quick test. I just want to do a quick test. You don't have to put your hands up. I won't. In fact, I'll close my eyes if you want me to. But just inside your head, raise your hand if you have ever felt guilty because you told a lie. (laughs) Inside your head, just raise your hand if when you were six years old and you got caught stealing candy at the liquor store down on the corner of the street, hypothetically speaking, of course, did you feel guilty? Of course. It's because there's a moral law and there's a moral law giver inside of our heads. Even with all your friends around you egging you on to do this. Hypothetically, of course, because there wouldn't ever be an associate pastor of Grace Baptist Church that was stealing candy from a liquor store when he was six or seven. And... And everybody knows this. In fact, we have a special name for people who don't recognize this. They're sociopaths. They're Jeffrey Dahmers. They're the most evil, wicked people around. Now, when I'm on the internet and I hear somebody making a, I see somebody, I guess, making a comment like this or in a conversation like when I was working down at uh, Cal State San Bernardino, well, there's no moral laws. The reality is you cannot live that way. And even the, the college students or the professors, really, who make the most ardent, uh, profession that there are no universal laws that apply to everybody, they have to live with moral laws. So they recognize intuitively in their hearts that there is, that there are laws. So I want to emphasize that. That's the beginning. Now we're going to go through some uh, very general uh, understanding of how especially non-Christians look at morals. And hopefully, uh, if you have any questions, please come up and, and talk to me about this. I know you guys, only a few of you have in the last month, uh, but do ask me questions because I'm going to be going over a lot of matter and it will be next week that hopefully uh, you guys will really uh, start to understand some of this. But I want to talk about two different kinds or classes of ethics. Remember, ethics is moral reasoning. It's philosophizing about what is right and wrong. It's not the exact adultery is wrong, stealing is wrong. Those have to do with morals. And these two different classes of ethics, there's two of them. The first one is deontological, and the note says uh, the ends or the results of your action determine the right or wrongness of that action. Oh, I, I just did that wrong, huh? Deontological says that there is a law that determines the right or wrongness, the morality of the action. Deontological systems, ethical systems, have to do with a law. They have to do with there's somebody, either a king or a god or the biblical creator god, who has given a law, and because of these laws, we have to act in a certain way. And the second is the teleological, or the ends or the results determine. And so the person who is a teleological said, well, the ends justify the means. 
That, that's, that's the classic statement of somebody who says, uh, that, you know, there is no law, and as long as I have a good end, as long as something good comes of it, then whatever I did is justified. You've heard, you've all heard that. Well, let's go down, and I just want to kind of really quickly, because this isn't where I want to end up tonight, uh, talk about this. The first one, the rule determines the result. Thou shalt not steal. Don't take your neighbor's property. And that law determines whether when you're sitting there uh, waiting at your friend's house, whether you should, you know, stick the $20 bill in your pocket that was sitting on his coffee table. Or that, you know, you should steal someone's car. Well, the law says don't do it. Now, the teleological says the result determines the rule. You know, so they can come up with some reason. Well, I used that $20 uh, to help out a homeless person. So it was okay that I stole it from that person. Well, we won't. I'm just describing the, the classes right now. The second one is the rule is the basis of the act. It's the reason. It's, the, it's, it's why you took this act. You did this act. And in the teleological, the result is the act. Uh, the rule is good regardless of the results. Now, here's one where non-Christians will, will jump on our backs on this one. Uh, the, rule make, uh, the rule is good regardless of the result. And they say, well, can't you imagine that there would ever be a good time to lie, for example, that would make the result good and so the rule was bad? Well, as a matter of fact, I can think of some. We're going to get into this next week. Uh, but the, the most common one example that would be given in church is Brother Andrew. You remember Brother Andrew back in the 40s and 50s. He would take Bibles into communist Russia. And I am sure, although I've never talked to the guy, I'm sure that there was a time when the guard was standing there with his, you know, AK-47 or whatever it was that he had and said, do you have any Bibles in there? And the guy said, no. Well, he lied. We'll talk about how that can be justified or not uh, next week. But, another, but what I want to say is that we can justify it. And just because we say that the law always matters doesn't mean that the law is never broken. We'll, we'll get to that next week. I'm getting ahead of myself. And then the last one is the rule always takes the results into the account. And in the teleological systems, results sometimes is used to break rules. Here is my classic example. Politicians. Politicians, this, this, I hope I'm not upsetting anybody, but both sides, the left and the right, will make some promises in order to get elected that they have absolutely no intention of fulfilling. But the end is good because they believe that what they will do for the country will be good. So if I tell a couple of lies here or there, I get elected and the result is good. Therefore, eh, if I told a few lies, oh well. But that would never happen in our country and we'd never elect anybody like that. So... Now, again, I'm, I'm water skiing through this, so I'm sorry that I'm doing that, uh, but bear with me. Now, underneath these two different classes of ethics, these uh, systems, these ways 
of determining whether something is right or wrong, there's four systems, for lack of a better term, uh, ways of thinking about it. The first is antinomianism. Antinomianism is against or instead of the law. An antinomian is someone who believes that there is no law. There is no moral law. Now, what's interesting is, as I said a few minutes ago, you can't live that way. You cannot live that way. You, you certainly could not be married and live that way because your spouse would either kill you or they would run from you very, very fast. It just, it, it can't happen. And so what they end up doing, most antinomians, antinomian, people who don't think there's a law, um, what they do is they'll just kind of make up their own. Uh, one example of this, uh, you'll hear people say, well, I do what's best for my extended self. And by what they mean by their extended self is they mean, well, I think about my spouse, I think about my kids, and I do what's best for them. That's baloney. That's just... It's just a bunch of smear to, to say, I do whatever I think is right. And they have some way of justifying it for themselves. The second one is situationalism. Situationism is, uh, some of you remember, uh, Joseph Fletcher wrote a book, and the title of it just fell out of my head, and it, I didn't write it down. Um, uh, but he, what, he, what he did was, he said, basically, the situation determines whether something is right or wrong. And he has been uh, accused of being an antinomian. But he says, no, that's not me. I'm not an antinomian. I believe that love, the law of love, ought to rule every decision that we make. Now, with just that, can anybody think of anything that might be wrong with that whole idea? Who defines love? And what's love in any given situation. And furthermore, is love going to make, even a properly defined love, going to answer every single question? And the answer turns out to be no. And though it's really popular to say things like, well, the situation determines whether stealing or lying is right or wrong, all that we ultimately get is... I just decided what I thought was best for me at the time, and that's what I did. Now, the next one, generalism, we're going to go through that one really fast. Uh, Basically, there's no universal law. Uh, You will see that these three, antinomianism, situationism, and generalism, actually end up being combined. Uh, Usually, in general, most people would not fall completely into any one of these. But the generalist says that there's no universal law, that uh, laws are made up either by societies or cultures, uh, and because they agree on them, therefore they are. I'll get to that in a second. Um, The last one, the last fourth is absolutism. And absolutists, for example, Christians, uh, Muslims are this way, uh, Jews are this way, Uh, And that's pretty much it. Uh, An absolutist says that there are multiple universal or absolute laws. There are multiple laws 
that apply universally in all situations. And it's these three uh, monotheistic religions that are the ones who fall into the absolutist camp. By the way, I want to note something else uh, because I think that Christians are often accused of being completely closed-minded and thinking that nobody else has any truth. Almost, not everything, but almost everything I'm going to say tonight and next week um, applies, not perfectly, but at least fairly well to both uh, believing Jews and believing Muslims. Um, Again, not universally, not 100%. But I want you to know that uh, ethics is a study of what God has put in the heart. And when people have recognized a God, then uh, they, they, they finally agree on a lot of things. Not on everything. I don't want you to think I'm, I'm going soft on you here. Uh, but let me... I want to go through, and the reason why I'm going to go through these, these four different uh, ways of looking, systems of looking at ethics, is because I want you to see where their strengths lie, why they have become popular in some circles, and why they are deficient, so that when you hear these things, you'll know without having to really think about it what is wrong with what they're saying. So let's start with uh, antinomianism. An antinomianist statement would be, lying is neither right nor wrong. They say there are no laws. Now, these are always literal or at least practical atheists. They do not believe in any God. And remember what we said a few weeks ago, those who deny gods completely always, at some level, have an authority issue. They're mad at an authority, and so they're denying the existence of any ultimate authority. These are the ultimate rebels. Uh, that's, that is what atheism is. They may not admit it, so don't confuse admitting it and it being fact. Um, therefore, while there, all, there may be subjective moral standards, there are no objective moral standards. What that means is... Uh, you know, I can say that I think lying is wrong. An antinomian might say, I think lying is wrong, therefore I won't lie. Or, better yet, they'll say, you think killing an innocent person is wrong, therefore you shouldn't kill an innocent person. But, see, what they're doing is that they're denying that there is a universal law killing an in- innocent person, and they're just saying, well, if you think it's wrong, then you shouldn't do it. Now, what are some benefits of this? They recognize the emotive element of many laws. Think back to when you're raising kids, or we're raising kids right now. Uh, think back to these days when you told your kids not to do something, and the primary reason why you said no is because you are too tired to get up off the couch and do it. Okay, is anybody with me? Okay, next week we're going to talk about lying. (laughs) For all those who didn't raise your hands. Uh, The antinomians recognize that there is this emotional element to almost, not all, but almost all laws. And they're saying, wait a minute. You're just too lazy to get your rear end up off the couch and do something. Don't tell me that this is an absolute law. Um, 
By the way, one of the first parenting books I read said, say no as little as possible. You know, that's good advice. Say no as little as possible. Now, there are some things you're going to have to say no to. But anyways, think about it. Uh, The second thing that's a benefit of antinomianism is they recognize the finite perspective of the individual. Okay. If lying, telling a, a, a lie, deceiving someone intentionally is a moral law, not doing this is a moral law, then the antinomians are recognizing that however big this law is, the way we see is narrow. We cannot see all circumstances. And we must recognize, at least theoretically, that some laws have what I'll call next week exemptions. Uh, They would say that there are exceptions. We'll talk about the difference of that next week. we, it's, it's healthy for us to recognize that we have a limited perspective. We don't know all things, and we need to recognize that there may be factors beyond what we can even possibly know going on in this individual situation. Therefore, we should obey Jesus' command in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, and not judge them, not condemn them for whatever we think is wrong. Now, what's wrong with their view? Um, everyone who denies all value believes that there is value in his denial. In other words, if they say there is no absolute morals, there uh, there is no complete right or wrong, in their denial they have to assume that there is something to deny. It, it, it's just the, it's the nature of the, of the reality. They're, by saying that, they're recognizing they, they have to recognize that there is something going on that they're denying. Um, and, first, and secondly, ethics or morality cannot be based on an individual. And this is really simple because if one person decides what is right or wrong, then really there, there is nothing but that person's decision. It, it, it's a tyranny. It's a dictatorship. And we all, in our guts, recognize that a tyranny or a dictatorship is wrong. Uh, I'm taking too long, so let me go quickly. Uh, Situationism, sometimes lying is right. There is one universal law. Uh, A benefit of it is that they recognize that there are different circumstances. Different things can be seen in different ways. For example, Brother Andrew lying to the guards going into East Germany with Bibles. Um, But... And the second benefit of situationism is a recognition that love and the value of individual persons. This is good. This is very good that they recognize this. But one norm, one law, love, is far too general. And secondly, the definition of love that is almost always given has to do with emotions. And for crying out loud, my emotions change because I put too many jalapenos on my Subway sandwich yesterday morning, right? I mean, my emotions are going to change whether I've had my first cup of Starbucks, right, Chet? So if that's what you're going to base your definition of love on, oh my goodness, that's just, you, you can't do that. You with me on this at that point? Okay. 
Uh, lastly, tonight, generalism. Usually, generalism is utilitarianism, uh, and what they will say is lying is generally wrong, uh, but they're not going to say that it is wrong because there are no universal laws. They recognize some norms, but no universals. A, a, a unit utilitarian is going to say something along the lines of, well, if in my telling these lies, I can convince these people to do something that would be good for them, then um, the ends will justify the means, and that's what, in fact, ought to happen. Now, the benefit is that they do recognize that there are some general norms, like lying. They would say, well, lying is usually bad. And they recognize that there is a solution to conflicting norms. This is going to be a big point, and I've, I've kind of kept alluding to it tonight. But next week, we're going to talk about what do we do when there is a legitimate moral conflict when we have a conflict between lying on the one hand and saving someone's life on the other. Both of these are a solid part of the moral law. How do we deal with this? What the, one of the very few things that the generalists have in their favor is that they recognize this type of thing happens and they offer a solution. Poor solution, in my book, but at least they offer a solution. And next week we'll talk about how you go about actually finding a solution to that. Uh, and the critique of generalism is the ends do not justify the means. Um, so this is a very general, I'm sorry, I water skied through a lot of ideas. Please do talk to me after the service if you have any questions on these. Uh, I will completely understand if you do. Next week we're going to look at what does an absolutist say and then we'll talk about some examples. And then two weeks from tonight, we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm finally going to get back to preaching the Bible. Uh, this has been at least as hard on me as it has on you. Uh, so hang in there with me. Uh, we'll get back to God's Word very quickly. But right now, let's pray. Almighty Heavenly Father, thank you that there is so much to learn. And thank you, Lord, that when looked at rightly, uh, your word gives us the answers we should look to. <sighs> Jesus, I pray uh, that you would help us to think through how we think and think through how others think so that we can help ourselves kick out wrong thinking and help others to do the same in a gracious, loving, and kind way. Jesus, I pray that you would indeed bless us so that we would be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.